This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the complete version of the Hockey News Podcast. It's Matt Larkin here back after a little baby-related leave. Ken Campbell and Ryan Kennedy did a phenomenal job holding down the fort. Now we are reunited. Good to be back, boys. And there's, there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of stuff going on. I want to dive right in with the World Junior COVID carnage. And, you know, we were talking even yesterday, is this tournament going to go on? And then we find out today that it's, you know, it's not just players now. It's Swedish coach Thomas Munton. It's IIHF president Rene Fassell, which almost feels like parody at this point. Even General Secretary Horst Lichtner. It's a PR disaster. And obviously it's a safety problem too. So I'm curious do you guys think this tournament can still happen? That's the big question I want to start the podcast with. Ryan, you are Mr. World Juniors, so I want you to start answering this question. To me, it's at the point where you might as well call it off. Like, I'm not sure who it benefits to play this tournament other than the broadcasters that have already you know, sold the commercial rights for it. For the kids, there's going to be so much quarantine and you know, they're being taken out of their lives and, and what happens, you know, if there's cases once they get in there and I know they're doing a lot of testing, but you know, because of the, you know, the, the lapse in time with this particular virus, it, it seems like nothing can be a hundred percent right now. And it, it just feels like, like, what's the point? Like there was already no relegation. So the stakes in this particular tournament were very low. Nobody was going down for next year nobody was coming up because they're not even playing that promotion tournament this year and yeah at this point I, I feel like just let the kids spend their holidays with their families back at home see what you can do in the new year it's probably going to be a lot of bubbles in different developmental leagues and I, you know I don't know what they're going to do in Europe but it just feels like like what's the point yeah, I, I kind of feel like the World Juniors, the 2021 World Juniors at this point are kind of like the Black Knight in uh, in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's like, you know, they're sitting there with no arms and no legs and saying, yeah, that's just a flesh wound. You know, I yeah. mean, it just keeps getting body blow after body blow after body blow, um, which which is, is really unfortunate because, you know, I mean, you know, for some of these kids, it's the only time they're ever going to have an opportunity to do this. And I, I've seen it time and time again. Like sometimes a kid comes into this tournament, plays really well, has a great tournament. This team wins the gold medal. And that, that might end up being the highlight of his whole career, you know, because he doesn't go on to the NHL and do a whole lot or pro hockey and do a lot. It happens a lot in, in, in this, in this tournament. And so that's really unfortunate. I guess really for me, the only saving grace for this is that they're doing it in a bubble. Um, and and I'm, I'm more and more convinced as the NHL tries to come back, as other leagues have tried to play, that the only way you have a fighting chance of doing it without having it completely, you know, turned upside down is to do it in a bubble. Um, so I, 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 I'm hoping and, I'm, and I guess that once they get everyone there, everyone's healthy um, and they're all in the same place and they're all healthy then, you know, maybe the bubble can work. I mean, we saw it at the NHL with, the, with what the NHL did last summer. You know, the bubble was, it turned out to be the safest place those guys could be. 33,000 tests, no positives. Um, so I, I guess if you're going to hang your hat on something, I guess it's that. 
um, but it looks pretty grim. Yeah, and you make a really good point, Ken, and I was going to say something similar because, you know, we do have the proof that bubbles work, and I think a lot of people forget that there was panic in, you know, it, early in July when teams were starting to regather in their camps and, you know, teams like the Blues, there were outbreaks happening. I remember friends texting me, you know, saying, it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. I kept saying to people, guys, wait until they get inside the bubble. This means nothing until they get inside the bubble. That's when we're going to properly be able to assess whether they can work whether this, this can work and they get in the bubble and there's not a single positive test. So I agree that, you know, that is something legitimately to hang your hat on. And I, I do think if we get that far into the tournament, if we, so we, if, play, if teams get in and they're quarantined, they're healthy, I think the tournament will be a, a quote unquote success. But the problem is, you know, what are you really playing for at this point, especially using team Sweden as the example, you know, you've lost your coach, you're, you're decimated at center. You're, you're not feeling really the the true version of what your team is and i know team usa had some major losses as well so what what is this tournament it's not really best on best it's steven it's kind of like the world championship hey oh because it's only whoever's available Shut right up. So Shut up. it's kind of a pointless tournament and steven chiming in but that's exactly how i feel about the world championship guys you're not it, it's not resolving anything because it's not your best roster and i think that's what's going to happen at the world juniors i think the teams that get in they're going to be safe once they're in there but the stakes they're pretty questionable. So, yeah. yeah. Um, next up, and Ken, I know you wrote about this for our website as well. You have some interesting takes. And a lot of people have some fired up opinions on this. So we know Mark Donnelly, the Canucks anthem singer, the guy who's known for skating while he sings and sometimes falling while he sings. He, we find out he's performing in an anti-mask rally. And then the Canucks owner, Francesco Aquilini, spitting fire on Twitter saying, please correct <laughs> Please change the title to former anthem singer. So he fires him with a tweet. And the question I have for you guys is, was that the right decision? Was it fair to fire someone over a decision to perform in an anti-mask rally? I've seen opinions on both sides. Some saying, yes, anti-mask, it's dangerous. I don't want to support anyone that supports that. Others saying, well, you know, is that fair to, to be fired for your opinion? So Ken, since you have the story on this on the website, I'll let you start here. Where do you stand? Well, like, let's acknowledge, first of all, that the Canucks were put in a terrible, terrible, terrible position here. Um, you know, it was, it was almost as though Mark Donnelly was, like, daring them to fire him. You know, like, he, he came out and he said, yes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing at this rally. And, I, you know, these are the reasons why. And, and you know, well, I'm being oppressed and everything. It, it really drew a line in the sand. And, and let's, let's face it, I mean, you know, he sang the anthem at a rally for a bunch of kookaloos you know like i mean these people are not reasonable like like it was called the bc christmas festivals rally or something like it just had so many undertones of just right-wing garbage you know like you know the war on christmas and the war on rights and everything so the canucks were put in a terrible spot and you know i can see why they did it but it, to me it's it's still sort of reeks of totalitarianism a little bit, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I just like, what if, like I said in my, in my blog, like what if, uh, you know, what if Elias Pettersson had shown up at that, at that rally, would they have voided his contract? What if Bo Horvat and, Q, and Quinn Hughes had shown up at that rally and, you know, were cheering along with everybody else and singing and dancing and, you know, not, and not wearing masks. What, what would they have done in that case? I mean, thankfully those guys wouldn't be dumb enough to do something like that. Um, you know, but I also, you know, and, and people didn't get the connection that I made 
but you know, and it happened 16 years ago, but Todd Bertuzzi almost killed a man while he was wearing a Canucks uniform in a game, <laughs> you know, and Francesco Asquilini was the, was 50% owner of the, of, of the Vancouver Canucks when that happened. And I don't remember him coming out and, you know, wanting to void Todd Bertuzzi's contract, which had two years left at five point something million dollars. Um, I don't remember him coming out and being very self-righteous at that time. So it does reek to me of, of a bit of a double standard. I would say the difference with the Bertuzzi case is at the time the Canucks supported him almost killing Steve Moore. And that was the basis of the Steve Moore lawsuit. Whereas the Canucks do not support people dying of coronavirus because their anthem singer sang at a, a rally. So I, I would say that's the big difference. Um, for me, it's a matter of actions have consequences. And there was you know, a violation of public health ordinances uh, by Mark Donnelly. He knew he was going to be breaking these codes. I, I won't call them laws. I, you know, I, I'm not a legal expert here, but he knew he was doing something against social norms here. He was doing something that was putting other people in danger. And frankly enough, he's not powerful enough a guy to be doing things like that. From my understanding, the Canucks were already phasing him out because uh, this is not the first infraction he's had with bad judgment. But you know, it's, it's not a free speech thing because the Canucks are not the government. I think that's something people lose in a lot of these debates. They say like, oh, free speech. It's like, well, no, actions have consequences. You know, the Canucks are owned by a private concern. They can do whatever they want. And they see this guy who is reflecting terribly upon the organization. And they said, we don't want to be associated with you anymore. We have other people that sing the anthem just as well, if not better, and you are expendable. And if this is the hill you want to die on, go right ahead. <laughs> yeah, I think you guys make excellent points. And, and I do agree with you, Ken, that, you know, there is preferential treatment. If it was a player, there would be no, no voiding of a contract. You're absolutely right. But, you know, when it comes to a player or to someone in Donnelly's position, unfortunately, you know, Yes, you could argue that it's not fair to fire someone for an opinion that you don't agree with. But I, I think when it comes to something like COVID, which is literally a life or death situation, not all opinions are created equal. And there's been, I, I believe, 492 deaths in BC from the coronavirus. So if you're supporting something that leads to deaths, not wearing a mask is the number one way to spread the virus. I think it's fair for the Canucks for their brand to say, no, we can't stand behind that. Especially this ain't Alberta where, where you know, they're pretty loosey-goosey with masks. BC is a pretty left-leaning province, and I, I just don't think it's what the city of Vancouver is all about. I don't think it's what the Canucks are all about. So I think one thing that a lot of people are forgetting is that it's also a business decision for Aquilini, just in terms of the Canucks brand. You don't want to be associated with anti-maskers because if you look at the Venn diagrams of anti-maskers, anti-maskers, you know, you're, I, don't want to, I don't want to label every anti-masker, but you're probably more likely to also be racist, for example. You know, there are just certain things that overlap if those are the opinions you have when it comes to the coronavirus. Like you said, Ken, a lot of right-wing beliefs as well. You know, you might be a fan of, you know, guns, all that kind of stuff, right? So from a business perspective, even if you're just treating it that way as a cold-hearted business decision, I think it makes sense for the Canucks as well. Uh, there was news last week reported by a couple different people that NHL teams, uh, I think as many as a dozen now, are exploring the idea of staging their entire home schedules, or at least a significant portion of their home schedules 
outdoors. I'm pretty skeptical about this idea, but I'm curious what you guys think. Is this legitimate or is this just sort of, you know, doing due diligence just in case it could work? Uh, Kenny, we'll start with you. Well, to me, I mean, there's so much that goes into putting on an outdoor game. I mean, the NHL basically has a department whose sole job is to organize and pull off and execute, you know, two or three outdoor games a year. (laughs) You know, I mean, that's, that's their entire job. And now, you know, we're talking about, you know, half dozen teams or whatever number of teams having their whole schedule played outdoors. One of them being the Anaheim ducks. I mean, you know, I mean, that's, that's a huge, like I, like for, for me, first of all, I, I don't know where, you know, I, 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 you know, I mean, you can get people in the building, but like, like, is there going to be a net cost savings here? Because it, I mean, it's going to cost so much to like, it costs enormous amounts of money just to put on one of these things, you know, to do it. Well, effectively, I guess, 28 times a year, if you're talking about a 58, 56 game uh, schedule. Um, yeah. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like I said, I, I'm more and more convinced, and, and the, the details haven't come out of what the NHL's return to play is going to be with the players, but at least for the, the first part of this, the schedule until, you know, a vaccine gets here and, and it can be distributed, you know, reasonably well, I, I just don't see anything but bubbles working. I just, I don't see it. I mean, it's been proven time and time again in just about every league that's tried it. You know, the Quebec League, it was very, very, you know, it was, it was a real kind of hodgepodge. Some teams have played 16 games. Some teams have played five, you know, uh, you know, the BC Junior League shut down, the Manitoba Junior League shut down, the Alberta Junior League is shut down. I just don't see it working any other way than, than in a bubble, at least for, you know, the foreseeable future. I'm intrigued by the outdoor games. Uh, you know, uh, from my read Los Angeles and Anaheim, we're talking about playing in a in a soccer stadium uh, in that area. And I wonder if the idea is that you have these games but limited attendance. Mm-hmm. You know, like we're seeing in the NFL right now, where there are some stadiums where, yeah, they hold eighty thousand people, but only twelve thousand are actually there, and that way you can utilize multiple exits and you don't have the same kind of crowding. You don't have to, you know, staff every single concession stand. You probably have something very limited. So you don't have to have as many workers exposed to the general public and you can kind of keep things as safe as possible. Uh, To me, it's certainly worth exploring. And, you know, Ken, you know, you're talking about the bubbles. I mean, you're, you're dead on. I mean, that's the way that it works. I think, you know, the USHL and, to a lesser extent, the NAHL are the only ones that have really been able to play most of a schedule or assemble the regular schedule uh, you know, with some post- postponements um, without a bubble. But otherwise, yeah, there have been a lot of some starts. I, I think with the NHL, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what the revenues would be. I guess it depends on the buildings and what kind of relationship you have with those buildings. You know, TV is important. And, and simply getting the games done so you can have that season is important so you can move on to the next American television deal. But I, I mean, I am intrigued. And I, I would say, you know, in, in markets like Los Angeles and Anaheim, where obviously the, the ice level itself is gonna be the only thing very cold, 
you know, from what we're now learning, um, and I wish we had known this when we did the podcast last week, you know, hockey seems to be very bad in particular for COVID because of the stratification of the air, uh, just because of the, you know, the, the coolness and the, you know, the humidity levels that you need for ice. So, you know, having an open air is obviously better than having it in an arena. And, and obviously basketball won't have that same issue. Um, so I, I think exploring is, is certainly worth it. And to me, it just comes down to, you know, what, what's the attendance, you know, what's the capacity that you use for these games? Because, you know, I mean, Ken's right. It is a big undertaking when you're trying to stuff, you know, 80,000 people into a stadium or even, you know, 40,000. But if it's only 10,000, then is it man- more manageable? I'm not sure. Right. And, and, and I think the problem is if it's only 10,000, is it worth it? Is it going to gen- generate enough revenue to offset the cost of operation? I'm not convinced that, you know, I did speak to an executive from, uh, I'll just say a, a, a Sunbelt NHL team without being too specific, who, who just sort of said, Nick, do you know what the temperature is outside today? Was sort of uh, <laughs> the argument. And the implication is, you know, do you know how much it's going to cost to try and keep the ice cold enough, the energy costs for these warm weather teams i just don't see how they're going to be able to get enough bums in seats to offset that i think aesthetically it'd be pretty cool but even competitively i know there were some concerns expressed as well that you know if you have one team that plays outdoors mm-hmm. and they're playing all of their games there they get really accustomed to the nature of the ice and the way the puck bounces differently and that could be you know it could create an unfair home ice advantage to the small group of teams that are playing their their games outside all the time so i just don't see it i don't see it working and i think you know again there's so many big picture problems i think when when you look at the owners i think they're they're thinking in this case they're thinking too short term they're trying to just you know salvage a couple of bucks here and there maybe we could get a thousand fans in the stands but if you're really thinking about next season which is the nhl's goal which is to make things right for seattle i think you gotta lock it down again and play it much more conservatively you know that the vaccines are coming they're starting to get distributed in the, in the coming weeks and months and i think it's better to be much more conservative with your the way you you address fans in your buildings or your outdoor in your stadium whatever you want to call them until next year uh so Speaking of the bubble, uh, we had 24 teams in it last year. Seven teams, of course, that missed the playoffs altogether. They missed the tournament. It was Anaheim, Buffalo, Detroit, LA, New Jersey, Ottawa, San Jose. They'll be permitted to start their camps early because they have that significant rink rust, as I call it. So I'm curious, you know, looking at that group of seven, which of those teams do you think is going to make the biggest strides and improve the most in this coming season? Ryan, we'll start with you. I'm going to go with the Buffalo Sabres. Uh, I, I don't think they're a complete package just yet. I'm still concerned about their goaltending and, and their defense a little bit. Although Rasmus Dahlin, you know, if, if we sort of prognosticate that he's going to continue on his ascent, then he's going to be quite the force this season on the back end. But, you know, bringing in Taylor Hall, bringing in Eric Stahl, getting a bounce back from Jeff Skinner, you know, potentially playing with, uh, with Eric Stahl again, maybe that will help. And obviously you have, a super motivated Jack Eichel to bring it all together. I think there's a lot of hope in Buffalo. And I I think they're at the point where they're further ahead than some of those other teams in that grouping that are still in the midst of a rebuild uh, in an earlier stage. So I I, I like the Sabres. I think they can, I think they can be dangerous and in a shortened schedule, if they can catch fire early, we've seen them catch fire early in the past. Maybe the problem is 82 games. Maybe 56 games is, is more of their speed right now. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm also going to go with Buffalo for all the reasons that Ryan said. I mean, I, I, I think that there's a, you know, I mean, the problem with Buffalo is it's Buffalo. Like, I, I just, I don't know why this franchise is so star-crossed. I mean, we've had these conversations before. We've had, you know, you know, we've talked about how much promise there is and how much hope there is. And, you know, obviously their acquisitions in the off season, you know, they were, they were, they were really proactive. They did, you know, they did some really good things, you know, getting Taylor Hall, you know, getting Mark Stahl or Eric Stahl, sorry. Um, and, you know, I mean, and like I said last week on the podcast, you know, Jack Eichel seems legitimately, you know, jacked about this. Like he, like, and I think, I think not pardon the pun, but you know, I mean, I think that, I think that, and I think that that's really important. I think it's really important that Jack Eichel is on board with everything and, and is feeling like the, the, the organization is moving forward. Um, you know, and another, albeit abbreviated season under, under Ralph Kruger, um, you know, who, who, you know, who is, is, you know, a, a different sort of cat in terms of how he approaches the game and how he, you know, motivates his players. Um, and again, like Ryan said, I mean, they, you know, getting out, out of the gate, you know, really well, hasn't been their problem. It's kind of been, they've, they've run on fumes after that. And so who knows, maybe a, a shortened schedule, they can, they can creep up on some teams. And by the time we hit 56 games, voila, they're, they're in the playoffs. Okay. I'm going to be uh, Mr. Team Ottawa, my old hometown. Uh, you know, obviously the Senators are, are far behind in their rebuild. They have a long way to go. But I think if you look at the moves that Pierre Dorian made this offseason, it's clear that he believes it's time to start inching the rebuild forward. It's no longer the scorched earth phase. And acquiring Matt Murray really sent that message. Murray, of course, I know coming off a really bad year in Pittsburgh. But historically, and I was doing a lot of research on this recently, he's a goalie who does a lot better with more work. The more shots he gets, the better he performs. And he was better in Pittsburgh when they were a weaker team defensively. So I think it's possible he has a bounce back year when he's busier and more of a rhythm in Ottawa. Of course, you bring in Evgeny Dodonov. You draft Tim Stutzel. You have the AHL Rookie of the Year in Josh Norris. And, you know, I think Drake Batherson is ready to be a full-time uh, NHLer as well now. He's done everything he can do in the AHL. You have Eric Brandstrom, I think, who could make the jump finally. You have Brady Kachuk, who I think is on the verge of a monster breakout. Just all the analytical data suggests he's right on the cusp because he's a pretty dominant player who generates so many chances. So I'm looking at it on paper. I know you don't want to just project an entire team of young guys to be good, but there's some veterans coming in to help now. And every, we see it every year. There's some team every year that has all the prospects and you know good young players on paper that makes the leap. It was Vancouver last year. And I think maybe it's going to be Ottawa. I don't know if that means playoffs, but I think, you know, pro-rated, let's call it, this could be a team in the 80s in terms of point range. It wouldn't surprise me that much if we saw a big leap from the Senators. So they are my pick. Uh, we have some really good listener questions this week. I like a lot of these. We're going to get to as many as we can. The first one, it's a two-parter from SportsFan93. SportsFan93 says, after what I call, what I would call a successful and well-timed rebrand for Ottawa this offseason, I agree, which team is in is most in need of a rebrand next? And additionally, would you be a fan of yearly NBA style city jerseys in the NHL instead of periodic mass releases like reverse retro? So uh, I'll take this one. The rebrand, I think it's got to be the Chicago Blackhawks. Uh, we saw when they rolled out the reverse retro jerseys. If anyone's watching this, you can see me. Uh, I know some are listening. But if you're watching that video, they were like, hey, check out our new jersey. They were like trying to shoot it from the side, hiding the logo. It's like, just admit it. You're trying to hide the Blackhawks logo. You, you know that the racial implications are no longer comfortable. 
You got to go the route of Washington football team, Edmonton football team, rebrand. You don't have to change your name from the Blackhawks is my understanding, but make the logo that bird. You can still have an awesome looking aesthetic in terms of the color. I think it's an ideal time for Chicago to rebrand. I think the Sabres could also use a rebrand as well, but Chicago would be my pick. And the second part of the question, the NBA city jerseys, which are really cool. I think that's just another example of something Adidas could do for the NHL. But reverse retro is a massive success so far in terms of the sales. I saw a stat, uh, I think it was from Greg Rosinski saying it was like 25% of all the business on the online store in the first week were from the reverse retro jerseys. So I think they're going to roll with that for now, but that city jersey idea, it's just one more rollout. It just shows that when the NHL tries something new with jerseys, it always seems to work. So it also is a good idea. Absolutely. That's where I stand on that. Uh, Ryan, what do you think? Well, I agree with you on Chicago. Um, you know, I don't think there's anything more uh, that can be said by that. So as a secondary one, I'm, I kind of feel like the Islanders could use a refresh, but then the caveat is that every time they do a refresh, it's a disaster. Yes. So maybe, maybe they're smart in saying, this is our logo. It will always be our logo. The only thing I was thinking of, you know, for their retro reverse was if they had gone, uh, Captain Highliner colors with the regular Islanders logo. That would have been something if he had gone with that kind of uh, turquoise, you know, tealy and orange uh, color scheme with the regular Islanders logo. That might have been something a little more fun for the fans. As for the NBA city jerseys, you know, I, I, I don't follow the NBA as much as I used to like watch the Raptors and, and that's it. But I find them way too confusing. It feels like every NBA team has like seven jerseys. And for some of the teams, like it's gotten to the point where I don't even know what city they are representing anymore because the nicknames are so obscure. So as, you know, a partial outsider, I think that, you know, reverse retro has obviously been a great success. And I thought that, you know, because teams went so bold, they got rewarded and you know talking about the stats like the washington capitals apparently have been the best seller so far and and really it was you know a really strong red base with that what i like to call the peter bondra eagle on the front so you know i, I think teams have, were rewarded for for sort of going big uh with those retro reverse jerseys um otherwise you know there's only so many jerseys you can do in one year. And I mean, with basketball jerseys, they don't, they're not as expensive. I don't think, cause you're not working with as much material. So fan of the Miami heat or whoever, like, you know, you can pony up for a couple of jerseys a year and it's probably the same as buying one retro reverse Jersey in the NHL. Um, so I'm, I'm fine with the pace they're going at right now. Well, <laughs> this topic is there any way i can just kind of skip this topic and move to the next one um okay first of all uh they're sweaters uh let's get that out of the way they're sweaters not jerseys uh sweaters 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 nope 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 nope, nope they're hockey sweaters they're not jerseys um and then secondly i guess uh i guess if i was gonna pick one it would be probably the carolina hurricanes um, I mean, I mean, going going with the, going with the 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 assumption that we all know that Chicago should be number one. Like mm -hmm. I, I'm going with that, and and 
you know, I mean, you should just be changing that logo. Um, so let's, let's deal with that. I, I've never been a big fan of the Carolina logo. Um, I actually like the one better that just has the canes down. I, I, I really, I really like that one. So uh, for me, it would probably be Carolina, maybe Calgary. I've never quite really liked, I know a lot of people like the flaming sea. I'm not a big, huge fan of it, but I guess it would be Carolina or Calgary um, with respect to the, um, to the, to what, the, the, the sweaters that the other the other sweaters that the reader was talking about um we're in the middle of a pandemic here and the nhl is losing gobs of money and teams are losing gobs of money if for no other reason then maybe they could you know exploit a few more revenues out of something like this um you know i i i i would say yeah why not like let's let's get on board with this i mean the nhl is gonna have to get creative here with um, you know, whether or not it puts, you know, we're, we're probably going to, I think we're going to deal with this later, whether or not it's, you know, putting advertising on uniforms, whether it's, you know, increasing the number of playoff teams, you know, in the playoffs, um, you know, something like this, they're going to have to get creative with revenues because um, they got a lot of them to make up. So I, I don't, you know, in, in this situation, I don't, I don't really see any problem with doing that. All right. It's funny with the NBA city jerseys. I was, I'm disappointed with the Raptors one. Like, how is it not called the six? Like you have, you know, yeah. Detroit has Motown as their team name. The Raptors just have Toronto. Like, come on, the six, it's right there. Do your nickname if you're going to do it, but I digress. Uh, next question is from JPW. This is a tough one. So JPW says, rank these young defensemen in terms of NHL overall career impact. Thomas Shabbat, Miro Heiskanen, Rasmus Dahlin, Kale McCarr, Quinn Hughes. Uh, and does anyone else belong in the conversation? It's a really tough question. Because they're all, I think, I think you've, JPW, you've named the five that are going to be the defining guys of, of this generation. Uh, and I know, you know, the sex appeal is Kale McCarr and Quinn Hughes for the offense they bring. But we're talking about all-around impact and also what guys have done relative to age already. Uh, I have Rasmus Dahlin number one. I don't think he's done any, anything to dissuade me from thinking he's going to be a generational type of talent on defense. He's still so young. So I have Dahlin, Heiskanen, McCarr, Hughes, Shabbat. But that's not a knock on Shabbat or even Quinn Hughes. I love all of these guys. I think they're all going to be, you know, I think they may be the five most important defensemen of the next 10, 15 years. Uh, in terms of guys that could join the, the convo, I wrote convo in my own notes, uh, that are young still uh, and, and could be making that leap. I'm going to say Ivan Provorov and Mikhail Sergachev might be the next guys that could join that tier. I, I wouldn't count someone like Seth Jones. I think he's already arrived. So I'm talking about guys that's still have room to keep ascending and maybe long-term, I don't know, maybe a Jamie, Jamie Drysdale, someone like that, but we haven't seen him yet in the NHL level. So it's a little soon for that. That's how I do my, my list. So uh, Kenny, what do you got? Well, I, you know, I mean, I, I, I actually have Darlene as number five on my, on my list, not number one. I have, uh, I mean, I mean, I hate to bail here, but I've got McCarr, Hughes and Heiskin. And I mean, and, and that that's interchangeable. They're all, amazing amazing defensemen i think they're all going to have huge impacts with their team i think they're all all three of them are going to be one two three in norris voting for a long long time um so i mean any one of those three i think would be you know you could easily put them number one then i have thomas shabbat and then i have rasmus Dahlin. as far as and again no slight against these guys to say that you're the fourth best defenseman in the best league in the world i think is still pretty good um you know and and as far as guys you know that that might join this list i don't know if shea theodore qualifies i mean thomas shabbat's 23 
Shea Theodore is 25. I still think there's, you know, I think, I still think there's room for Shea Theodore to grow, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for his game to grow um, and, and to, to get better. And that's, that's why I would probably put him on this list. And he, I think he's going to be a guy that's going to be right up there in the, in the coming years, you know, maybe an Adam Fox, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a guy like that, uh, you know, as far as longer term, uh, you know, I mean, Owen Power, Luke Hughes, Roman Schmidt, guys that are up for this year's draft. I mean, I think those guys are going to be dominant defensemen. And, you know, we always talk about, you know, how, you know, how many great young forwards there are in the NHL. I mean, you know, when you do something like this, you realize, holy cow, there are just some off the charts, talented, unbelievable defensemen coming up the pipe here. And it's going to be pretty exciting. Yeah, for me, you know, when I, when, I, when I look at this question, I think who will be able to accomplish the most? Because it, it is such a tight grouping. And because of that, I have Miro Heskinen number one because he already had a monster run to the Stanley Cup final with Dallas. The Stars are probably going to be pretty good for the coming years. And he's only going to get more important for them. So I have Heskinen one. Uh, followed by Makar and Hughes. Um, obviously, Makar in Colorado, you know, the Avs are a Stanley Cup contender for this season and, and will be a contender for the next few seasons. I feel Vancouver's um, a little bit behind them, but not too far, you know, assuming they get the goaltending um, like they did last year from, from Markstrom. Uh, then I go Shabbat and Darlene. Um, Shabbat, he's already such a huge minute muncher and he has such a big impact on the Sens that, you know, I could see him as one of those guys where his success will come a little bit before his teams. So we could be seeing, you know, Shabbat get Norris consideration, even if Ottawa is just a bubble playoff contender. Um, Whereas, you know, Darlene, I think he's going to be very good, but he He's, he's just not going to have the same impact as Shabbat, perhaps just because Ottawa has already needed Shabbat so much. But yeah, it's a, it's a super tight packed group. And I would love to have any of these guys on my team. I think they all have the capability to win the Norris, you know, within the next five years. And, you know, as for other players, um, you know, you guys have mentioned a lot of names already. I think Owen Power is a great consideration. Jake Sanderson is another player that I think has a, a ton of potential. And then uh, Brant Clark is another player who's up for the draft this year out of the OHL that I think you put into that category with Luke Hughes and Jamie Drysdale and players like that. Excellent points. Another name I forgot in terms of potential major impact is Alexander Romanoff. We should be seeing debut in Montreal. I love that guy. Uh, as a player. I think he's going to make a massive impact. I think he's going to be a Calder Trophy contender right away. Uh, but, you know, it's funny. I think you guys might have convinced me in Dalim when I look at the team success playing into the overall career legacy. Maybe I do have Dalim too high at number one. You might have sold me. Maybe I put Heisken in number one. So, well argued, gentlemen. The next question comes from this. I, I don't know if this name is a typo or what. It's called, is it Bud at Hucky? Bad at Hucky? Maybe bad at hockey was taken. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. With talks of how much money teams are going to lose in an empty arena season, what other avenues can the league take to make money? Would one year of KHL style ad jersey, ads on jerseys be on the table? 
Uh, of course, I think it's a great idea. Like you said, Ken, the league has to find any way it can to make money and stay afloat as best it can uh, in the short term. Another idea I have, and this, this requires a bubble. So if net, we, it's been proven that bubbles work, like, like we said, NBA, NBA and NHL combined had zero positive tests in their bubbles. So let's say we reach a point for the postseason where we have bubbles. The NHL, I think, could sell a VIP fan bubble experience. So if you're a wealthy fan that doesn't have many ties, maybe you're semi-retired, you don't have to work all the time, or you can work from your hotel room, you can buy yourself into the bubble, you can quarantine, you pay, probably pay you 10 grand, some special VIP package, you stay there the entire time, and you're, you're quarantined, so you're completely safe. You can go to the arena because you're bubbled the same way the players are, and you get to experience the entire playoffs. I don't know what the financial value of that would be, uh, but may, maybe it's not the entire playoffs. Maybe you're free to come and go You know, for a certain – let's say you want to come for the first two rounds, you're out, something like that. But I, I think because it's proven that the bubble works, you could have fans, if they're willing to quarantine, be away from their families if they love the game that much. I think it works. So that's my pitch. Uh, what do you got, Ryan? Um, I had a similar thought, but a more of a virtual one, because I have no faith in rich people listening to instructions <laughs> um, in terms of like quarantining and bubbling. Like if you have somebody that can spend that much money on a hockey experience, there's no way at one point they were like, well, I'm just going to duck out to Starbucks. It'll be fine. Don't worry. It'll be fine. Yeah. It, I don't have it. Right. Yeah. So, but what I was thinking is sort of a similar vein is having, you know, a VIP experience, um, but virtually where you go to your season ticket holders or or just fans in general and say, you, if you buy this package, you can have, you know, your own private Zoom interview with Sidney Crosby or Connor McDavid or whoever, or, you know, you get to watch our meeting uh, where we talk about our strategies from the game that we just played, you know, what we're going to do on the power play or something along those lines. Uh, obviously nothing that would upset the competitive balance for the team, but something that was insider-ish that was like a, a boutique experience. Um, so I, I think that's possible. I think, you know, ads on jerseys, it makes sense in the short term. And like, I don't like it in general. Um, I mean, the, the worst jerseys, in the world are European jerseys because they have ads all over them. Um, not, not to say, you know, nothing to say about soccer jerseys, which are the worst jerseys in all of sport, because I don't know who wants to play for, you know, the name on the front when the name on the front is, you know, like Emirates Airlines or MasterCard mm-hmm. um, or like Thomas Cook. But uh, I digress. I think as long as the NHL said, okay, we're only doing this for the pandemic year and then we're taking them off, you know, no debate on that. Uh, we believe in the sanctity of the sweater. Um, then I, you know, I mean, I, I don't think anybody would, would have much of an argument there. Um, having said that, it's probably inevitable uh, since we're already seeing it in the NBA that you're going to get some ads on NHL jerseys soon if not very soon yeah to me there's some really quick fixes here uh that 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 would that would you know net net the league a fair bit of revenue and by extension the players as well which is why i think in in this whole collective bargaining agreement uh 
business that they're doing right now. I, I'm, I'm not sure why the players wouldn't be pushing for these things more to be able to say, okay, well, you want this? Okay, we want advertising on, on uniforms. Um, and to me, advertising on uniforms would be like income tax. You know, once you do it, you're not going back. It's, it's going to be permanent. It, you won't do it for one year and then pull it off because, you know, you see those revenues, you see what it does. And to me, I, I have zero, zero problem with advertising on uniforms. You know, it doesn't change the, 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 the fabric of the game one bit. Doesn't change the quality of play. Doesn't change the product. I mean, I, I'm, you guys aren't old enough, but I'm old enough to remember when there were no advertising on the ice or on the boards. And everybody lost their stuff when there was going to be advertising on the boards, you know? I mean, it was such a big deal, you know? Oh, my God, the sanctity of the game. I remember, I think Bill Torrey said it looked like Coney Island out there and, you know, all this stuff. And, and like, to me, it's nothing now. It's nothing. We, we accept it. It's not a big deal. It doesn't change the game one iota. To me, that, that, that's an easy one as far as I'm concerned, getting the advertising on sweaters. The other one... I think the one that I don't like and does change sort of the integrity of the game is increasing the size of the playoffs, increasing the number of teams mm -hmm. in the playoffs. I'm against it. I don't like it. I want the NHL to stay at 16 teams in the playoffs. I think it should be something that you have to earn. <laughs> you know, it should be hard to make the playoffs. It should be really hard to make the playoffs and to have 50% of the teams make the playoffs, I think is very, very reasonable. Um, but I can see that being a place where the players say, well, you know, if you're looking to increase revenues, that's a real easy one, you know? So, so to me, those two, I think are the ones that if I were a player and I wanted to start generating more revenues, um, I, I would be, I would be pushing the NHL to say, okay, well, you want more, you know, salary deferral. Okay, great. Then in, in return for that, we're putting ads on sweaters. We're putting, you know, we're increasing the size of the playoffs. Those ones are pretty easy ones. For sure. Uh, we'll do one more question from a listener. This was from Quichi. When And Quichi asks, when will we see people in the stands again? I'm going to say not in the regular season. Uh, and I know, you know, the rules in the, in the States differ. I don't think definitely not in Canada. And I know, and I know in the U S state laws, you know, there we've seen it in the NFL where some teams have fans in stands, some still don't. But, you know, as you alluded to earlier, Ryan, with the ventilation problems in an arena, it's so much different in hockey compared to any other major pro sport. Basketball, too, indoors. But hockey, it's basketball risk plus the ventilation with the coldness, right, the temperature. So I think hockey is the last one of the major, the big four, that's going to be able to safely put fans in stands. Um, and it's crazy, though, because the owners want it. You know, we had Bill Foley on the podcast about a month ago. And, you know, right before we started the podcast, he told me that he had COVID. And, you know, that's not a secret. It's public knowledge. But he told me he had COVID. And then he went on to say during the, the podcast that he, he would, you know, love to see half the stands filled with fans, right? So the owners have that mentality. They, I know they want fans back in stands, but I, I still think it's too risky. Maybe you could see the goal being by the playoffs because then, you know, who knows where, where we'll be with the vaccine several months from now. And, you know, we've seen before in the warm weather months, cases tended to trend down as people could be outside more. So maybe we see a small contingent of fans for the Stanley Cup finals, something like that. But I definitely don't expect it for the regular season. What do you think, Kenneth? Well, I, I think it's, it's going to be dictated, dictated by science. Um, you know, when there's a vaccine available and when there's, you know, reasonably quick testing available as well, I think, you know, I mean, there, there, there's, you know, I've, I've been reading about some of the quick testing stuff and it's not 100% reliable. And in some cases, it's not, 
you know, it's, 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 it has its flaws, but I know in like Slovakia, I think uh, recently they tested like two thirds of the country within a couple of days, you know, and so it can be done. And so I think, you know, when we get to the point where you can walk to the rink, uh, where first of all, where we have a vaccine that's ready, readily available, you can go up to the rink, you can take a quick COVID test and determine whether or not you're positive or negative. Uh, I think that's when the people will come back. I think part of it depends on where your team is situated. Um, you know, I mean, I think there will be fans in Florida arenas a lot sooner than there will be in other ones because, you know, Ron DeSantis, the government, the governor of Florida is a guy who just seems to think that, you know, screw COVID. Uh, we're just going to keep trucking along here. And I wouldn't be surprised if the Tampa Bay Lightning are the first team to be playing before full houses and, and not, and not in the too distant future. So I think it depends on where you are, but, but, you know, if you're looking at prudent, doing it prudently, I think this year is, is a write-off uh, basically, because I'm, I'm not sure a vaccine is going to be widely available in time for this season to, you know, for them to do it this season. Um, you know, we are seeing rollouts coming and, you know, but, but, you know, the pe people who go to hockey games who are generally, you know, more affluent people who are sort of healthy and all those things, you know, they're, they're going to be last in line to get this, you know, and they should be, <laughs> you know, so I, I think it's going to be a while. Yeah, I agree with Ken. Uh, I, I think it might be kind of piecemeal in the regular season, depending on local ordinances. So, you know, and, and yeah, Canada, probably not, but um, you know, states that have more sort of small government um, type governments in office, Florida, maybe Texas, so you might see Dallas with fans, uh, you know, Missouri, you might see St. Louis with fans. Um, I, I think possibly you see some sort of percentage of capacity, uh, if not just kind of wide open, depending on, you know, what they allow at the time. Um, that would be for this season. And then obviously the hope for next season is that you can kind of have business as usual as the vaccine becomes more prominent throughout the continent. All righty. Good answers. We're going to finish the podcast with the rapid fire game. I am the rapid fire game. I almost said rapid farter. I guess I'm that too, if I'm being honest. Uh, just ask my wife. Oh, it's all right. <laughs> you definitely are. <laughs> but uh, I'm going to be the game master this time. And Ken, you're going to be the first question answer. Ryan, you'll be second. So we are ready to go and we will begin now. Breakdancing has been named an official event for the Paris Olympics 2024. Ken, like or dislike? Surfing too, right? Isn't surfing going to be one of them as well? I'm not sure, but hey, this is rapid fire. I'm, I'm on board with surfing. Answer. I mean, that's a that's actually a sport. <laughs> I I love it. I love it. Why not? You know why? Because whenever they put these goofy sports in the Winter Olympics, Canada always wins. Like Canada's <laughs> count goes up like huge because of these these goofy other sports. So I, I'm going to say, yeah, go ahead, go for it. Why not? <laughs> I like it as well. It'll be the first gold medal won by the Bronx, BX. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I think breakdancing takes a tremendous amount of athleticism. So I don't think it's like a sideshow. Like when they wanted to bring bridge, the card game bridge to the Olympics, get out of here. Breakdancing, hell yeah. Next question. Predict 
oh, wait, no, this one doesn't work anymore because we've just learned that the exact start date is going to be January 13th. It, my question was, predict the start date of the 2021 season. So that yeah. question's out the window. I'm tossing it. Next question, Ken, what is your number one phobia? Snakes. Did you say eggs? <laughs> I thought he said eggs as well. Oh, I said snakes. <laughs> oh. Well, snakes do come from eggs. Yeah, so that's understandable. Eggs. <laughs> uh, for me, it's what I deem to be unsafe heights. So a roller coaster or like a tall building, but ladders uh, sort of freak me out. Okay. I'm going to say fire and extremely hot things. I think I was burned in several different incidents as a child. So I was conditioned to be afraid of like fire and hot things. Uh, next one. Who will win the Calder Trophy this season? Ken. Kirill Kaprizov. I'll say Alexander Romanov. I, I, I'm, I want to say Kaprizov, but I'm going, to, I'm going to throw my number two pick in there to make it interesting. Igor Shosturkin. What is the worst movie you've ever seen? Ken. Uh, the Piano. Oh my God, that was terrible. Like, let it, just end it, please. Why? Cause, why, because the piano won Oscars? No, because it was terrible and boring. Like, I knew the piano, I knew that when they threw the piano over the, over the side of the boat that she was tied to it. I knew it. I could, I could, I scripted that. I, I, I predicted it. I, I just thought it was really boring. Is that the one where Holly Hunter's doing the sign language? Holly Hunter won an Oscar, Anna Paquin won an Oscar. Yeah. I believe 1993. <laughs> Okay, Ryan, worst movie, go. Uh, Pretty Persuasion with Evan Rachel Wood. Super derivative, totally unbelievable. Okay, I'm going to say Pearl Harbor. Michael Bay was on a heater. He'd done The Rock, Armageddon. I had big expectations. He'd done Bad Boys in the 90s. Then he just throws a dud, Pearl Harbor, which was just absolutely terrible. It made it look like two, two guys won the war. Two, two G.I. Joes. Terrible, terrible movie. Last one. Ken, would you rather block a Zdeno Chara slap shot or have Gilbert Gottfried stay at your house as a guest for an entire month? <laughs> I actually saw Gilbert Gottfried once in, I think it was like 1991. I went to see him. He wasn't that bad. He was, I don't find him that grating. So I, I think I'll go with Gilbert Gottfried. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, I'll go with Gilbert Gottfried as well. I'm a big fan. Like every day, every day he'd come down and he'd go, he'd say, am I getting fat? Like, you know, do I look bad in this? <laughs> you know what? See, I think my, my bruise from my char block would be, you know, healed in a few days. But I think after like day three or four of Gilbert Gottfried, he's going to be getting on your nerves. And you're going to be like, oh, my God, I should have blocked the shot. I have 25 more days of this guy. And he's just so loud. Like, I think the shine wears off quickly on Gilbert Gottfried. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, on that note, we're going to end the podcast. And, you know, as I implied, there's progress in CBA talks. Well, CBA is now, that's in a good place. Now we're getting to return to play talk uh, at the time of the time we're recording this podcast. So by next week, we might have an official schedule, in which case we could start previewing the divisions if we know about the realignment. So we'll be back soon, hopefully to start previewing and talking about actual hockey games and teams. Thank you for listening and watching.